Mark chapter 2, verse 1. A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. And so many gathered that there was no room left, not even outside the door. And he preached the word to them. Some men came, bringing to him a paralytic, carried by four of them. And since they could not get, to, get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus, and after digging through it, lowered the mat the paralyzed man was lying on. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now, some teachers of the law were sitting there, thinking to themselves, Why does this fellow talk like that? Love how they translated it, fellow. Why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately, Jesus knew in his spirit that this is what they were thinking in their hearts, and he said to them, Why are you thinking these things? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Get up, take your mat, and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins... And he said to the paralytic, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. And he got up, took his mat, and walked out in full view of them all. And this amazed everyone, and they praised God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. This is God's word for us tonight. If you would, let's pray before we consider it, okay? Let's pray. Father, we do ask that in these next few moments you would be our teacher. Father, you know that this room um, is filled with people in all sorts of different situations. Some people come in here feeling excited and enthusiastic. Some people come in here feeling exhausted and burnt out with just another religious meeting they feel like they have to go to. Some people come in here uh, with lots of questions, lots of doubts. A lot of people come in here with, with tons of guilt and baggage and fear that if anyone ever knew what they were really struggling with, that no one would ever love them. So, Father, I pray that you would, in these next few moments, meet us where where we all find ourselves, skeptical, spiritual, religious, rebellious, wherever. We do pray that you'd be our teacher now. Would you you speak uh, through me and to me and despite me? We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. I went to college at the University of Oklahoma, which, much like App State, is in a college town, small college town. And you know what it's like being in a small college town. One of the things that you do, because there's not a whole lot to do, is to drive around and explore the area. And so uh, my junior year of college, we found and stumbled upon a... An abandoned slaughterhouse. It was, uh, you know, this this huge complex where they would, you know, have cattle, butcher them, process the meat. But it hadn't been in operation in like 20 or 30 years. And it was in the middle of this forest. And uh, we actually found it my freshman year. But by the time it got to be my junior year, we decided, me and a buddy of mine, to take this group of freshmen that we were friends with and go into the slaughterhouse. Now, let me set this up for you. You have to drive to this building, and there's no other way to describe it other than creepy. Because you drive, you, you, you pull into this forest, and all you have is the moonlight kind of eerily 
illuminating the place. And uh, it's dark outside, and, and in the middle of this forest is this uh, like ominous death building. And uh, totally dilapidated, hasn't been in operation in a while. So we get out of the car and we go around to the back and we find that you can access it through peeling back some uh, aluminum siding. And so we kind of peel the metal back and step into the slaughterhouse. And it is kind of what you would expect. Pitch black dark. It was like a scene out of uh, Chernobyl Diaries. And uh, we had flashlights. And so all you could see was the beam uh, wherever the, the light fell. And there's, you know, there's trash on the ground, uh, you know, maybe some beer cans and dirty old stuffed animals like in the corner, like really creepy stuff. And so we're, we're walking through this place. You know, as you can imagine, we're all kind of huddled together, breathing hard, hearts racing. And we see this... Um, rickety, precarious, unsafe set of stairs going up to the second floor. And so, of course, we had to go up them. And so we started to go up to the second floor. And the second floor is where the cows were actually slaughtered at one point. There there were uh, stalls and gates, and there were drainage holes where the blood would kind of pour through. And it's just, it's about as nasty as you could imagine. Flashlight creeping around. And so right as we kind of had decided, you know, we've had our fill, we're ready to get back out. All of a sudden, we hear this boom from downstairs. Something banged up against the side of the wall or whatever. The girls scream. We all freak out, panic, grab each other. <laughs> trying to sh- you know, sh- sh- you know, calm everybody down so we could listen. It's silent again, eerily, creepily silent. All you can hear is maybe like the, the metal swaying in the wind, just, you know, screeching against you know, the trees. <laughs> We're listening. Boom! Sure enough, some, something is down there. And we are freaking out. And so we begin to, we have to convince this group of people that we're with, the only way out of this place is to go back downstairs. And so we, we begin to kind of get in a huddle, you know, get our game face on, and we're starting to walk. We, we, we begin to say, okay, we're going to start walking down the stairs. As soon as we begin to start walking down the stairs, we're, most of us are still in the drainage slaughter room. A couple people have kind of made their way down the stairs. We hear something behind us. Turn the flashlight. And emerging out of the darkness, I'm not lying, an old man with a beard camouflage walking towards us. So of course, we scream and start running down the stairs. One of the girls, you know, these steps were in bad shape. One of the girls falls through, catches herself by the arms, legs dangling into nothingness. She's screaming. She's panicking. She's freaking out. We pull her out, and we start going downstairs. We eventually get downstairs. We, we are, like, freaking out, and we're looking for where is that metal that we, that we came in on. And as we're zooming across the light... The light catches another man running towards us, screaming at the top of his lungs. Now, at this point, at this point, we revert into primal instincts and start pushing each other. We're running into the darkness. We eventually find our way to the metal. We get out. We're screaming, hysterically, panicking, crying, freaking out. Get to the car, jump in, peel out. Everybody's okay. Even the girl that fell through, you know, she just kind of scraped up a little bit. Get to the, um, 
get to the dorm room, and of course we're telling everybody that the story, you know, telling everybody that story. Now, what these freshmen didn't know was that the two men in the building were my friends. <laughs> dressed up as homeless people. that uh, we had planned the whole thing and that we uh, did this regularly to <laughs> freshmen that we met. <laughs> so, now, the reason I bring all that up, which I'm sure you're wondering, is because, you know, our friends, this sweet little group of freshmen that we terrorized, they thought that their biggest problem was two homeless men trying to kill them. But they didn't realize their big, their, the bigger problem was that they really they just had crappy older friends. That was their real problem. And the reason I bring this up is because of very similar things happening in the story. The story that we just read, what Jesus does, what I want to draw your attention to first and foremost, I, I want to point out three things. But the first thing I want to point out is that Jesus, he redefines our problems you think you understand your problems, and he's going to show you in the story what you think is your biggest problem is not, and you have a much bigger problem that you may be unaware of. That's the first thing I want to show you. Jesus redefines our problem. So let's look at this passage. The, begin, the, the episode kind of begins by pointing to the fact that Jesus has this uh, almost a celebrity status. He's preaching to a packed house. It's uh, standing room only. You know, nobody can get in, which kind of presents a problem to these guys that we learn about in verse 3. If you look at verse 3, there are these four guys, and they have a friend who's paralyzed, which means he, he can't move. And so they are so convinced that Jesus can do something about this man's condition, so they literally pick him up on a mat and walk him to, to this packed house where Jesus is preaching. But the problem is they can't get in the back door. They can't get this man to Jesus. And so they do what any rational human being would do, which is climb on the roof and rip a hole in the roof and then lower him in by a, attached to a rope. I, I, I would love for that to happen right this moment. be a little blasphemous, though. Um, so they lower this man in through a roof. And Jesus you know, stops his sermon, he looks at them, and he looks at the man, and he says, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now, I would imagine that the record would kind of skip here, and the music would kind of like, er, and stop, and everyone's like, sins? Who said anything about sins? And, he, and I would imagine, you know, what's it like to be the paralytic? Here, here you're brought to this guy who can do any, you know, heal you, there's all this huge reputation around him. And you're like, well, you know, thank you, Jesus, for that. I, I can't walk still, though. You know, that's, that's helpful, but not why I can't. I mean, it'd be like going to a doctor because uh, you have a broken leg, and he writes you a prescription for, like, allergy medicine. You're like, that's just not helpful right now. So what is going on? What, what is Jesus talking about? Well, what's going on is that Jesus is saying... I actually understand your problems better than you do. You think your biggest problem is your physical condition, your, your suffering. But the biggest problem is your sin. Now, 
When the Bible uses that word sin, it uses it in a lot of different ways. And what, what Jesus is getting at here is all he's talking about is he's talking about this selfish condition of our hearts. Our hearts have a natural condition to be inward and selfish and more in love with ourselves than anybody else and more in love with God. That's what he's saying. He is saying that is the deepest problem that you actually have. You came to get your body healed, but if I heal you of your body and I don't actually deal with the real core issue, I'm not doing you any favor. I'm not, I'm not actually helping you. And what we see, well, at least what I see, is that I, I know of a lot of students that come to RUF, that get involved in church, that do religious stuff because they want to relieve some sort of suffering in their life. A, a lot of people that I know get really religious because they just had a breakup with their boyfriend or their girlfriend. Uh, they've got family issues at home. They're, they're, you know, they're overwhelmed with life. Uh, they're buried under depression or an addiction. And in the midst of that, they turn, they turn to get Jesus to fix it. And what you're going to see in this story is that Jesus, by the way, never, ever, ever minimizes those things. He, he never minimizes those things. He takes those things actually very seriously. As you're going to see, he actually ends up dealing with this man's paralysis. But the first thing that he says is, that's not deep enough. If you come to Jesus to get your relationship issues fixed, if you come to Jesus to fix your loneliness, to fix your, you know, for him to fix your family issues, for him to fix your depression, your addiction, whatever, if you come to Jesus to fix those things, he's going to look at you and say, look, I'm perfectly able and willing and I'd love to take care of those things, but if I do that and only do that, that's not fixing the real problem because the real problem is you in your heart. Uh, let, me, let me illustrate it this way. Uh, when I was in high school, there was this guy who was a year younger than me. And he had one of these kind of celebrity conversions. He was uh, you know, into drugs and in kind of the drinking scene. He just kind of was known as being an all-around bad boy. And uh, became a Christian in high school. And got... You know, swept up into the youth group and um, uh, really found a home there. Everyone loved him. He, he quickly became a leader within the youth group. Uh, he, was, he was commonly asked to tell his, his, uh, his testimony, his Christian story at the youth group and at various youth groups all over the town. I mean, he was like the poster child for youth group kid of America person. He was that kid. And so... Um, uh, you know, he would play guitar and lead worship for the youth group. He, he actually formed a little Christian band and wrote Christian songs and performed them at our youth group or, you know, around the campfire. I mean, he was that guy. And so, uh, as I said, he was a year younger than me. So I eventually graduated from high school and went to college where I learned to terrorize freshmen in slaughterhouses. But after I was there for a year and I came back home, it had been a whole year since I'd seen this guy, and I caught wind that he had kind of gone wild. He had kind of, he'd left the church, uh, kind of punted the whole Christian thing, and was going back to kind of hang with the bad crowd. Now, how do you explain that? How do you explain the youth group kid gone wild? Because I know, I mean, you know, you know people like this. 
And this may, this may actually be your story as well. This was, this was you. You were, you were that kid. You were the poster child, the youth of America, youth group person. You know, you were, you were that person where your youth group leader called me and, and let me know that you were coming to app and said, uh, you know, you're so lucky to get this kid because uh, they're just a great leader and everyone's going to become a Christian on campus through this person and you're just, you're just lucky to have this kid in your ministry. And uh, you get here and uh, you make new friends, you stop going to church, uh, you start dating somebody that doesn't really care about religious stuff. You start making out with the red solo cup. You start going down that path. I mean, how do you explain that? How do you explain that? Here is how you explain that. This kid from my youth group, he never loved Jesus. He just loved the benefits, the blessings that Jesus provided for him. He loved being patted on the back. He loved being in the spotlight. He loved having everybody tell him how great he was. He loved the attention and the approval from people. He he loved the benefits that Jesus brought him, but he didn't love Jesus. Because when he got to college, or when when he found himself with a different group of friends, these friends didn't love Jesus. These friends didn't love church. These friends didn't think it was cool to have gone on a mission trip. These friends didn't think it was cool to have played guitar in a youth group. In fact, they thought that was lame. So what was going on? In both points in this guy's life, He never loved Jesus. The thing that he loved was the approval of other people. The love and the attention of other people. And because that deep down thing never got dealt with, that never got addressed, he didn't change. He didn't actually love Jesus. He just loved the benefits and the blessings that Jesus provided from him in a a temporary sense. So, if you come to Jesus... And you say, hey, I want you to fix my relationship with my boyfriend or, your girl, or my girlfriend. Uh, I, I want you to fix my family. I want, I want you to get me into this particular club. I need an A on this exam. When you look to him as a handyman for your life, he's going to look at you and say, it's not going deep enough. I can do those things. It will not change you. It will not help you. Don't you see what Jesus is doing here? He, he's redefining our problems. He, he's saying... You think you know what your biggest problem is. Paralyzed, relationship issues, overwhelmed, that's not it. The biggest issue in your life is the selfish condition of your heart. That's the thing that has to be dealt with. That's the first thing I want you to see. The second thing that Jesus does here, he he doesn't just redefine our problems. He redirects our problems. And, And let me explain what I mean by this. He doesn't just redefine it. He redirects our problems. Let's say... Uh, you came up on stage, whatever this is, stage, you came up on stage right here, and uh, a friend of yours came with you. And let's say your friend just kind of goes off and jacks you in the jaw, just sucker punch to the face. And I look at your friend and I say, hey, I forgive you for that. You'd be sitting here, you know, bleeding, embarrassed, angry, and be like, Matt, that makes no sense. You can't forgive them for what they did to me. Only I can forgive them. They didn't sin against you, they sinned against me. That's how forgiveness works. That's how it works, is you can't forgive somebody unless you're the one that was sinned against. So, when Jesus looks at this man, and in verse 5 says, I forgive your sin, he is implying, your sin has been against me. Which means, he's, nobody else could say this except God himself. 
This is why in the very next verse, verse 6 and 7, the religious teachers are thinking, uh, he's claiming to be God right now. Jesus isn't saying, hey, I'm just a good teacher. I'm a miracle worker. I can do cool stuff, special effects. He is claiming to be God because he's claiming to be forget, to forgive sins. And that's why they think this is blasphemy. They're, they're concluding rightly. Don't you see how Jesus is redirecting our problems? He is saying your problems, your sin, your issues are against me. And he is inviting us to think about our sin in these ways. Is that how you think about your sin, your issues, your mistakes, your screw-ups? Do you see them as violations and assaults against Jesus? Because that's what Jesus is saying here. That's what he's claiming. When you are around a group of friends and your friends say to you and encourage you and say, look, getting hammered is no big deal. You know, and then they supply some arbitrary condition as long as you don't get belligerent or violent or whatever. It's no big deal. Or you maybe even think about the you know, subject matter yourself. Uh, well, I'm 19. I'm 20. I'll be 21 soon. It's not a big deal for me to drink. Jesus looks at you and says, look, your friends and your opinion don't get to determine this subject. I do. And both of those are violations and assaults against me. Or some of you may have friends that encourage you in your own self-righteousness. Maybe you have friends that foster and fuel hatred and anger for other groups of people. Maybe maybe, uh, the group of people is the the homosexual community. Maybe it's a political party that you disagree with. Maybe it's atheists on campus. And your friends are around you and justifying and supporting and encouraging you to be angry and filled with hate towards those types of people. Because after all, we have the truth. And we're, we're justifying it with biblical grounds and saying we have the truth. We have a right to be angry at those people because they're wrong. And Jesus is going to look at you and say, your self-righteous bigotry is actually an assault against me. Or you may think, um, hey, everyone and their mother on this campus takes the little sauces of Chick-fil-A sauce in the union and puts them in their pocket and doesn't pay for it. It's 20 cents. It's not a big deal. And Jesus says, that's a violation against me. That's an assault against me. That's how he redirects our problems. That's the claim that he comes out saying. So don't you see, he, he, he redefines our problems He redirects our problems. And here's the last thing I want to highlight. He ultimately resolves our problems. That's the last thing that you have to see. Okay, so Jesus announces to this man, your sins are forgiven. And uh, part of what the religious leaders are thinking is something like this. Well, that's very convenient, Jesus. Because here you're presented with this impossible, non-fixable situation. And it's easy to just say, well, your sins are forgiven. It's a whole lot harder to actually heal this man. I mean, isn't that right? Isn't it harder to do a miracle healing than to say, well, I forgive you. You're you're forgiven. There's no way to prove it. So what Jesus does is he enters into their logic here. This is brilliant. Look at verse 9. Let me read verse 9 again. Jesus says this. He's addressing the religious leaders. Which is easier? To say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and take your mat and walk. 
but that you may know that the Son of Man, and he's talking about himself there, so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. What he says is, you think it's harder to heal someone. But look, I'm going to heal them, and he does, with one sentence of his breath, heals the guy on the spot, and he walks out, in order to validate the previous claim that he has the authority and the ability to forgive him. Don't you see? That's what he's saying. Because the religious leaders are thinking it's a lot harder to heal somebody than it is to forgive them. But for Jesus, it's actually the other way around. It's a whole lot easier for Jesus to heal this man than it is to forgive him. Why? Because to heal this man cost two seconds of his day, a sentence. But to forgive this man, it would cost Jesus his life. In order to proclaim forgiveness to this man, Jesus knew this is ultimately going to cost me my life. Now, how does that make sense? Why must Jesus die in order to be able to forgive someone. Well, let me just unpack that for just the rest of our time, and then we'll be done. Let's just say that, um, well, you know, whenever whenever you wrong somebody, there's there's a certain debt that gets created. I mean, think about this at an economic level. Let's say that you came over to my house, and you smashed my Xbox 360. That would be a bad day for you if you did that. But let's say you smash my Xbox 360. What would happen would be is that you would either pay for a new one or you would give me money so that I could go buy a new one. You would pay for it or now I'm left with no Xbox or I go pay for it. If I forgive you, it's going to cost me something. I'm going to have to go back out and buy a new Xbox. You only have two options. Whenever there's a wrong and there's a debt created at an economic level, either you have to pay for it, the person who did the wrong, or the person who forgives has to pay for it. But it's not just at an economic level. Think about how this works relationally. When someone hurts you, there's a debt that's created in a sense. Uh, when, when they hurt you, when they, when they violate you, when they take something from you that you can't get back... When someone damages your reputation, there is a, there's a debt there. You know, there's, a, uh, there's a sense of injustice, and someone has to pay for it. We even use that language, that kind of monetary language of saying, you know, they've got to pay for this. So option one is that if someone hurts me, they pay for it. And the way that we make them pay for it is that we attack them back. We retaliate. We're mean towards them. We, you know, we damage their reputation. They pay for the debt. But if we forgive them, if we choose to forgive them, that means that we absorb the debt ourselves. And that is unbelievably painful. I mean, do you know how painful it is when you want to simmer with vengeful thoughts, when when you want to retaliate, when you want to snub them or be cold towards them, but you don't because you've chosen to forgive them? I mean, that's agonizing. Forgiveness is painful. It is costly. So you may be thinking, okay, I get that. Forgiveness is always costly. It always entails suffering. But why does Jesus have to die? I mean, I forgive people all the time. I don't have to die for them. Here's why. Let's say you came up here on stage again and you slapped me. A lot of slapping and hitting on stage tonight for some reason. But let's say you slapped me. Now what would happen? I would be embarrassed maybe. Y'all would not know what to do. Um, but the pen, you know, as far as your penalty goes, it really wouldn't be that big of a deal. Slap me, 
Not much happens. But let's say you go and you slap Chancellor Peacock. Uh, very different consequences. Uh, you would probably be arrested, uh, taken to jail. Uh, you would probably be uh, thrown out of school. Radically different consequences. Same little minor action. Now let's say that you went and slapped President Obama. My guess is before you can even, if you're backhanding it, my guess is before you can even connect, Secret Service would have taken you out on the spot, no questions asked. So how do you explain, okay, one little minor thing, slapping, same thing, but you just move it up through the hierarchy of importance and authority, radically different consequences. I mean, don't you see how that just kind of, that just works? So what happens when you slap God? When, when you, a minor little offense against God, little white lie, little, you know, stealing the things from Central, little things. What happens when just a little thing you violate against ultimate authority? Absolute importance. Now the consequences are infinite. Now the debt is unfathomably enormous. And you have a choice. Either you can pay off that debt or God can. And the reality is there are some of you in this room that are trying to pay off that debt. And you are trying with everything in you to be good. You go to church, you come to RUF, you pray, you read your Bible, you try really hard to work on your language, you try to fight your pride, you try to fight against your lust, and you're trying, and you're trying, and you're trying. And it feels like no matter how hard you try, you are not good enough. And this is why some of you, honestly, have walked away from Christianity. Because you're exhausted with it. And it doesn't seem like it works it just feels like you're, on, you're, you're a hamster on a wheel that is running and running as hard as you can, and you're getting nowhere. And there's no peace. It just feels like a drudgery. It feels like slavery. Arcade Fire has this great line in one of their songs. And here's what they say. They say this. Do you really think your righteousness can pay the interest on your debt? That's a great line. Do you really think your righteousness can pay the interest on your debt? You can't pay this thing off even if you tried. And that's why you're exhausted. That's why you're worn out. Because you can't do it. You can't pay it off. Even though you're trying. But that's the first option. Either you, either you pay this enormous debt off or God does. And that is why Jesus has to die. That is why God himself comes in the person of Jesus and dies on the cross. It, 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 if I can put it this way. It takes a God-sized payment to pay off the God-sized debt. And so when you come to Jesus and you embrace him by faith, only when you embrace him by faith, what happened on the cross, him paying for it all, you get the credit for. Which means that your debt is wiped clean. It is finished. Every sin that you have ever committed, past, present, and future, is dealt with. It is done away. It is finished. It's over. It is taken care of. And this means when you have that thought and you say, you know, I've done this thing, and it feels so shameful. I feel so guilty about it. God would never be able to forgive me for this. That's because you don't understand how big and how beautiful and how infinitely valuable the cross is because it pays for it all 
This means that no matter what you think or feel or do for the rest of your life, no matter how heinous, no matter how terrible, it will not jeopardize the forgiveness that you have in Jesus if you have received him by faith, which means that it's free. It is free for you, and it's unbelievably costly for him. So, what does this do? When you actually get a hold of this, and you grab Jesus by faith, and you understand the cross deeper and deeper, do you know what this does? Here's what this does, and I'll end with this. You stop relating to Jesus as your handyman, as your miracle worker, the person who's just going to come and fix up your life, and you put a little tweak here or there. You stop relating to him like that, and you start relating to him as your savior. Meaning, you stop relating to him as being just useful. And you start relating to him as being beautiful. You you move away from the fear and the anxiety and the guilt and the exhaustion and the treadmill that's going nowhere. You move away from that into joy and into worship. Either you pay for the debt or Jesus does. And that's the question I want to leave you with tonight. Let me pray. Father, we do ask that you would give us grace to come to the Lord Jesus and embrace him by faith. The one who has paid our debt in full. The one who is our prophet, our priest, our king, our Messiah. He is the one who has spilt his blood and therefore he is the one that is truly majestic, truly beautiful. And I do pray, Father, for the folks in this room that are struggling to believe that. That really do believe that you punish them, that, that you um, that even though they've embraced Jesus by faith, you're trying to make them pay for something that they've done in their past. You're trying to get even with them. Father, I pray that you would cast out all of those lies and free them by faith to grab a hold of the gospel in a deeper sense and to be liberated from the slavery and the misery of thinking that you relate to us by our performance knowing that you relate to us purely by grace. I pray, Father, for the folks in this room that really do feel so weighed down with guilt that they would find the sweetness of your forgiveness tonight. I pray that they would embrace and taste the glory of your grace tonight. And I pray for myself as well. Father, you know I struggle to believe this too. I think that you love me and uh, like me because of the good things that I present to you and and you just remind me over and over that's a lie you love me because you love me and you love these folks because you love them i pray that you give us the grace to believe it we pray all this in jesus name amen